We are um, working our way through this series on decision making. This or that. How do you choose? This is the fourth week, and we've been uh, sort of wrestling through what are the criteria that are involved in making good decisions. We've looked at uh, what to do when you've made some bad ones. How do you clean up the wake of bad decisions that are in your past? Uh, we're going to spend some time looking at the process of discernment, how you align yourself with God and place yourself in the best possible posture to be able to discern his will and purpose for our lives. On Father's Day, we're going to spend some time talking about how you can become a catalyst for good decision-making in the life of your family. Uh, but this morning, we're actually going to drop anchor at... Um, what is probably the central point in the decision-making process. And we're going to look not at a whole bunch of decisions. We're going to look just at one. Those of you who have been tracking with us, you'll, you'll remember this statistic, that the average human person makes how many conscious decisions a day? 70. 70. So do the math, that's 25,000 or so, roughly over the course of a year, a million or two million decisions that over a course of a lifetime are really what shape a life. And some of them are complicated. You know, where will we live? What school should I go to? What should I study? Where will I invest my efforts? What will make my career be? Should I date this person? Should I marry this person? How should I invest my time? And some of the decisions are really heavy. And we've been walking with our church family, with some of our members this week, through some pretty heavy decisions. End-of-life care issues for a parent or a spouse. How do you decide? I have a child, and I'm watching them go down this terrible, painful road. What do we do? How do we decide? Somebody in the life of our family, or maybe my own life, I'm... I'm wrestling through addiction, and it's got this power over me. And I feel powerless in the shadow of it. How do we help? Just excruciating decisions. And we've been talking and praying with people over these things in the course of their lives. But even when it's not these life-shaping, excruciating decisions, sometimes it's just the sheer volume of decisions that has a way of weighing us down. You know, what insurance company do we pick? How often do we revisit the policy? What kind of investment choices are we making? Why are they tanking when we need them the most? What am I going to read? What am I going to do with the stack of books that is this high that I'd intended to read that I'm not getting to? What do I do with all of that stuff? What do I want for my birthday? <laughs> it's not my birthday, by the way, so don't, 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 don't go running out there or anything. But have you ever actually just been paralyzed by the number of decisions? Have you ever had this experience? I had this not too long ago. I was out to lunch with somebody. I don't know what kind of day they'd had, but they were glancing through the menu, and you could just see the welling confusion and frustration on their face, and eventually they just sort of said, I give up. You choose. Actually, they said it to the, to the wait staff. Hey, you know what's good. Just bring me something. You know, they, uh, it's sort of like that moment of desperation says, I've been making decisions all day long and I'm just tired of it. I don't care what you bring out. Just give me something to eat and I'll, and I'll eat it. And we get that way sometimes. We don't, we don't even have the will left to choose. Anybody here ever feel indecisive? Yeah. yeah I don't, uh, should I put my hand up? Should I? Yeah. 
Hey, this is something I read this week, the Guinness Book of World Records. True story, as far as I know, anyway. The world's longest engagement. A guy named Octavio Guilan and Adriana Martinez engaged in 1902, but a little bit of indecisiveness settled in. He couldn't make up his mind, kept putting off the wedding. They were married finally in 1969 after a 67-year engagement. That's longer than it took Karina to decide. I told that joke in the first service, and she didn't come back, actually. She's, uh, yeah. So I'll tell you a secret. She proposed to me. And I decided right away. Yeah. Anyway, hey, today there's a passage in the Old Testament that deals with decisions. And we're going to sit with this story a little bit. Uh, it's from a little book called the Book of Joel in the Old Testament. You might want to be looking through the table of contents to find that one so that you'll have it ready when eventually we get there. But let me just give you our theme verse. This is from Joel chapter 3, verse 14. Joel three fourteen. multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. So this morning, we're going to live there a little bit. The day of the Lord in the valley of of decision. Uh, as we go there, let me draw you to, to an image that we have used several times during the series. I want you to imagine a large, clear bell jar, you know, like a pickle jar, but huge. And inside that jar, on little slips of paper, are written down the decisions that you make day by day, week by week. You fill one out, you stick it in the jar, in the jar, in the jar, and it's just packed to overflowing. And we talked about uh, the key to making some of the decisions that you put in the jar. And we talked about how painful it is when you put some in there and you want to reach in and take them out, but you can't. You know? And we said, you know, God doesn't change the past, but God can redeem the past. And there's a big difference. And if you want to, you can, you can listen to that message. That's from a couple of weeks ago. Here's where I want to start today. I want you to imagine that that, that jar itself is empty because we're not focused on the myriad of decisions that go in there. We're focused just on one, the master decision, if you'd like. What is the thing that you're going to place in the center? Like if you could place only one defining decision in the jar, what would it be? Some people call that the master value. What is it? Well, you know what your master value is when there's a conflict in values in your life. This is the one that always wins. This is the one that trumps. It's not the one that we say is most important to us. It's the one that actually is most important to us. Because when push comes to shove, this will, this will be the reason that we decide this way and not that way. And we're going to talk, I'm going to talk as clearly as I know how this morning about that master value. And then we're going to give you a chance to affirm what that is. On your way in, hopefully you received one of these little cards and a golf pencil. If you didn't, at some point you can just raise your hand and, uh, and one of our, uh, one of our kind, kind gateway staff will find you. This is kind of like, a, like an opportunity to, to put pen to paper and, and make it real for you. Uh, a moment when you put a stake in the earth and say, okay, as for me today, this is the defining value, the master value of my life. We're going to give you a chance to do that. This is my commitment. 
Who or what are you going to follow? What's the ultimate decision? What is the defining commitment of your life? Uh, Let me start by acknowledging this. That that kind of talk, I know is, well, it's kind of countercultural in our world. It doesn't sound very tolerant. You know that there's only one thing. There's not room for a whole bunch of things. It doesn't sound very embracing of diversity. And there's a tendency to resist this movement towards making a choice. I will stand for this above all else. Because we like to value plurality, diversity. We like our options. And I get that. There's been a whole lot written over the past several years, especially in the business community, especially around the subject of strategic thinking, about not boxing ourselves in to the tyranny of either or. It's got to be this or that. You must choose. Instead, why not open yourselves up to the genius of both and? It can be both and. Let me give you some examples. Um, either or thinking, both and thinking. It's not either a good flight or a really fun flight crew, a good safety record, or really cheap values. Fly Porter Airlines. With us, you can get it all. It's not either tastes great or less filling. Drink Miller Lite, unless you're a pastor, and then you don't do that. At least you don't talk to the church about doing that. It's not either good quality or low prices through the genius of Ikea. You know, the Swedish furniture design giant. I can have both. I just can't figure out the instructions, you know, how to put it all together. But we love freedom. Don't we? we? We love options. We love choices. And we've convinced ourselves that the more choices, the better. But it turns out life doesn't always work that way. And then sometimes having too many choices actually is paralyzing. I'm getting some nods there. You know what that's like. One of the leading researchers in this area, a woman named Sheena Iyengar, wrote a book years ago called The Art of Choosing. Fascinating stuff. She became quite famous in academic circles for a single experiment, and it began with a real-life experience. She'd observed that in a local grocery store in her community, where she would sometimes shop, that she found the experience of shopping fatiguing and overwhelming because there was just too much choice. She gave this example. In the aisle where there's jams and jellies, she counted one day over 300 choices for jam and jelly alone. As a kid, I remember we had Welch's grape jelly. That was it. All God wanted you to have was Welch's grape jelly. That's what we had. But 300 different choices. It boggled her mind. And she thought, you know, if I find this exasperating and exhausting, I wonder if other people feel the same. So she conducts an experiment. She runs a study where they set one of those kiosks, uh, like a merchant's display in the store, allow customers to sample and make their choice. Costco is famous for this, right? How many people miss being able to eat samples at Costco? Okay, yeah, yeah. Now, you can lose weight now, actually, that you don't have to do. But anyway, so she, she arranges a couple of these kiosk displays, and they run them for a few weeks at a time. The first time they do it, they have 24 different varieties of jams and jellies. You can sample them, you can pick. And they run that for a while. And then they switch it up a little bit. 
And for the next few weeks, they run the same brand, but they show only six options. And you would think that the prevalence of choice, of variety, would drive sales, but it proved to be just the opposite. And not by a small margin, by a factor of 10. People were 10 times more likely to take a sample and buy a product when the choices were limited to just a few than when you had this huge smorgasbord of choice. Now, what was going on? She said people just got jam fatigue, right? They, they couldn't choose. It turns out that sometimes, that sometimes either or is less fatiguing than both and. When I got married, I was asked to take a vow, standing up there on the altar next to Karina. It included these words, and will you, forsaking all others, be faithful to her as long as you both shall live? That's an either-or vow, right? Imagine if I'd said, hey, that's kind of, that's kind of boxed in thinking, isn't it? Either her or the others. There's so many interesting others. Let's do both and. I mean, let's just open it up. I'd like to apply the genius of both and thinking to my marriage. And how do you think that would have gone? I would have been a lonely guy years later practicing my both and approach to relationships. What I'm getting at, here's the thing, is that we all, we all have this altar in our hearts, in our lives. And we're all going to place something on it. And we have to decide what's there. And we like to imagine there's room for all kinds of things, but altars don't work that way. There's room for only one. And there's a very powerful range of options that are all vying for a primary place on the altar. It could be ego or success. It could be admiration. We want other people to love us. It could be security or pleasure or comfort avoiding conflict above all else, but something is going there on the altar. The Bible calls the human race to place something on there that is much nobler than any of those things. The Bible calls human beings to wholehearted, unreserved, all-in, fully committed, wholly surrendered devotion to God. And in saying that, I realize I have said something that is very countercultural in our world. Because we just want to believe that you can go after all of it. That you can pick and choose little bits of this and that. We even believe it in, in, in areas of, of worldview and philosophy and religion. We'll just take a bit from here and a bit from there. And as a consequence, people kind of drift through life. Never actually placing a stake in the ground and saying... As for me, this is it. This is the master value of my life. Instead, what, what we do is, is we imagine that we can take a little bit of God in here and then pursue whatever else we want over here. And I'm just telling you that over and over again in the Bible, there is a call not to do that, but to make exclusive commitment to God, to do so in the Valley of Decision. Let me give you some examples. Moses, Deuteronomy 30. Moses says, I call upon heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life 
so that you and your descendants may live. That's not a both-and decision. That's an either-or. Choose life. This is what the choice looks like. Love the Lord your God. Obey Him. Hold fast. Whatever else you have to let go of, you let go of it. Later on, Joshua says a similar thing. Speaking to the people of God, he says, Now, if you're unwilling to serve the Lord, then choose this day who you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Generations later, a prophet, a man named Elijah, comes near to the people and he says, how long will you go along limping with two different opinions? What an interesting figurative bit of language, right? Get confused about what goes on the altar in your life and you just kind of limp your way through. You're back and forth all the time. He goes on to say, if the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. And here's the paralysis. But the people didn't answer a word. They couldn't decide. All the way down to Jesus, you know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, lover of children. He wouldn't demand this kind of exclusivity, would he? When it comes to the two great things vying for central position on the altar of our life, Jesus was crystal clear. Not a popular teaching, but here it is. You cannot serve both God and wealth. Period. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, be devoted to the one, despise the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth. But hey, Jesus, aren't you being trapped by the tyranny of the either or? Jesus, I I like the genius of the both and. There's room for lots of things on the altar. I'd like to have God's blessing, God's favor in my life, but I also like the, the right to hold on to control to these little things that serve my ego and serve my success. I, I'd like the freedom to adopt and hold on to the, the kind of attitudes that I have. I get mad at somebody. I want to be able to resent them. I want the right to, to extract a little bit of revenge. It feels so good, doesn't it? I want to retain that. And let's be honest, there's a dark side of me that I kind of like gossiping when things are going wrong and somebody else is like. I like being judgmental about other people. Makes me feel better about myself. I want to retain those things. I'd like to have you in my life, God. I want all that hope and mercy and grace. But I want my life to still be my life. So if possible, let's just have me and a little bit of you sprinkled on top. And that that would be good. Here we are today, folks, in the valley of decision. And Jesus says, it doesn't work that way. Notice in in that verse we just read, you cannot serve both God and wealth. Jesus doesn't say, you should not. He doesn't say, I wouldn't advise it. He says, you cannot. Nobody can. It's just, it's not a possibility. If you think it is, you're deluding yourself and you're probably headed for disaster. You have at your core a master value. There's one thing that comes first. You may not even know what it is right now. It's good to get clear on what it is. 
But one of the ways you figure it out is if there's ever conflict in your life, this is the one that you go with. This is the one. If you're not sure, uh, here's a here's a great take some courage, but a great thing to try. Ask the people around you who know you well. What would they say is your master value? They see it. They see it in you, even when you don't want to see it in yourself. All of that brings us into the valley of decision. And that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time today. Will you decide what to place on the altar? What will you give your allegiance, your whole heart to? To what will you surrender your time? To what will you relinquish your resources? Will you determine to obey with your, with your mind, your words, your body, your, your gifts, your attitudes, your habits, this one thing? Will you decide to follow holding nothing back? The Valley of Decision really is a great image. It's used by, by Joel. And, uh, well, you've had about 10, 15 minutes now to find the book of Joel in your Bible. It's tricky. It's kind of, it's hidden in there. If you have a Bible app, you've got a great advantage. But if you're leafing through the print version, you'll find it. Oh, let me give you a clue. It, you'll find it right before Amos and Obadiah. Yeah, not much of a clue, is it? It's toward the tail end of the Old Testament. Uh, this is a short little book. Uh, as you're leafing your way through, let me just say that this is a book that is triggered by a catastrophe. You get a sense of what's going on as you read just the very opening few verses. Book of Joel starts with this. He says, hear this, you elders. Listen, all those of you who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or even in the days of your ancestors? You're going to need to tell this to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What is it? What's the catastrophe? Well, here it is. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. It's locusts everywhere. Why is that a catastrophe? It's kind of strange sounding to us because we've got supermarkets. We generally have food available to us whenever we seek it, often in an abundance that the world has never known before. We have insecticides, we have fertilizers, we have stable food production, at least in this part of the world. But in the ancient world, pestilence like this meant death. And it still does in parts of the world. There was a locust swarm that swept through Africa in the 20th century, covered 2,000 square miles. There were 24 quadrillion insects. I didn't even know that was a word until I saw it this week. 24 quadrillion. Here's another number for you. One female grasshopper laying eggs in June can produce 18 million descendants by October. How's that, moms? That's a lot of mouths to feed. And it's in feeding all of those mouths that the catastrophe fell on the nation of Israel. You might remember, some of you, that the, the locust was one of the plagues that was visited on Egypt. The ten plagues. Now, that same thing is happening to Israel. And there's massive suffering, loss of life, starvation. And you know how it is even in our day when that kind of catastrophe strikes. Tsunami or earthquake. 
There's almost always somewhere in the scene some crazy religious guy holding a sign, you know, repent, the judgment of God is near. I mean, maybe Joel is a little bit like one of those guys, only he's not a crackpot. There's something about catastrophe in the world that sounds an alarm bell. It's like a flag goes up and suddenly our eyes are directed to heaven. We're asking all of the big questions. Joel was, in fact, one of the great prophets of the world. And he changed the moral compass of the world by saying to Israel and then to the whole world that the world is not a random chaotic accident, that it was made by a good and just and a holy and a loving God. That the reason there's so much suffering and pain, the reason that it sounds all those warning bells in us, is that our world is not the way it was designed to be. And we all just kind of know that. It's why we panic and get frustrated and get angry when things go wrong in our lives and go wrong in the world. Very often, catastrophe rings the bell. There's this great crisis, and it also points to the greater crisis that, that we know is true. And Joel would say it does one further thing. It points to a crisis that is yet to come. He calls it the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is coming. Justice is coming. What's coming on the day of the Lord? Justice is coming. We live in a world filled with injustice, and we know it. Life isn't fair. You've had those moments. Life isn't fair for you sometimes. Sometimes it's not fair for me. And we want justice. And we want to pretend that we're people who are serious about justice. We live in a world filled with injustice. And we're like, man, there ought to be justice in that situation for those people. When an umpire blows a call, or a cop gives a ticket that wasn't deserved, or a judge blows the verdict, or a a jury misses the decision, we're up in arms. There are people who are oppressed. There are people who are hurt. We want justice. And the Bible says, hey, justice is coming. Another prophet, Amos, again, someone who changed the moral compass of the world, said that one day justice will come and it will roll down like mighty rivers. Who's going to judge? God is going to judge. And God says, this is in Joel, if you still have your thumb in the book of Joel, In chapter 3, verse 2, he says, I will gather all the nations and I will bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And there I will enter into judgment. And you're saying, what did the pastor just say? Jehoshaphat? Yeah. I pronounce it that way intentionally, Jehoshaphat, because that's kind of a made-up word. It's not actually a place, at least not that we know of. It's not a physical place at all. It's just a a jamming together of two words, one of which you know. Jeho, Jehovah, the name of God. And Shaphat, which I'm about to tell you, is the word judge. Jehovah will judge. The Lord God is going to judge. Now you imagine... You imagine God judging. After we've lived in a world where so many people miss the call, where where injustice still reigns, God is going to judge, not just Israel. What he says here, I will gather all the nations in the valley of Jehoshaphat. It's going to be England and France and Germany. There's going to be Ukraine and Russia and Syria and Iraq and even Canada will be there. 
And God is going to judge. And he gives an example of what's happening. He says he's going to enter into judgment against the nations because, verse 3, it's a hard verse, because they cast lots for my people. They traded boys for prostitutes. They sold girls for wine so that they might drink. What is that? It's human trafficking. It went on by the millions. It still goes on by the millions. And we want justice. That's just one example of evil. How much evil is there still in the world? I mean, what do you think? Is it just trivial? Have we advanced to the state as civilization with so much achievement and medicine and technology that there's less of it than before? The words of the prophet are kind of sobering in this regard. Listen to what God says. He says, swing the sickle. For the harvest is ripe. Come trample the grapes, for the wine press is full, and the vats overflow, so great is their wickedness. Prophet says, despite human effort, there is still great injustice in the world. And we know it's true. It wasn't that long ago that in Rwanda five hundred thousand people were called cockroaches and exterminated as though they were insects. Half of them were children. What scale can we possibly weigh that on? What scale do you think God weighs that on? This is God's world. Those were God's children. A gunman in Texas slaughters 21 children and their teachers. Those were God's children. What scale do you possibly weigh that on? Eight million citizens of a sovereign nation are forced to flee their homes under the relentless barrage of a foreign invasion. The largest flight of refugees that Europe has seen since the Second World War. Second World War. How does God weigh that? There are dead soldiers on both sides of the line. Those are God's children. See, it, it seems to me that when my life, at least, is going pretty well, when things are pretty comfortable. I don't actually like to hear about those things. It's kind of strange. But a lot of times, when people, their lives are going well, they're comfortable, they're fine, they don't want to hear about the horrors of the world, and they certainly don't want to hear about the judgment of God. You're already thinking the sermon has gone on too long, and it's not a pick-me-up. It's not a, I wish I'd gone for brunch instead today. But I promise you this. People who know the pain of oppression people who live in situations of injustice and powerlessness, for them, the fact that justice is coming, that God is going to judge, that is good news. Historically and contemporarily, that has always been good news. And I want to give you a verse. And I think this is going to become one of your favorite verses. I hope it does. It's one of mine. This is from the Psalms. Psalm 56. Psalm 56, verse 8. Psalm 56 says, you have kept count of my sorrows. You have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your record? Let me give you the image because it's a beautiful one. It's a poignant image. In the ancient Near East, one of their customs when people mourned, when they went through tragedy, is they would keep small alabaster jars. You can still find them in the Middle East. They're They're available for purchase as a reminder of the custom. They would place them in the corner of their eyes as they wept, and they would collect the tears. 
And even people who had no power, people who were oppressed, they had no money, they suffered greatly, they had nowhere to go, they would still they would collect their tears in a little bottle as a way of, of saying, I matter. I matter too. My tears count too. And here's a reminder in the Psalms that God himself has a bottle. And it's unspeakably poignant. Every tear ever cried by an abused child, every bullied student, every bullied victim of racism, every betrayed spouse, every boy mocked for not being masculine enough, every kid ridiculed for not being the smart one or the pretty one, every mom who had to watch their child starve to death, knowing that there were people in the world who had more than enough, every tear of every victim, all the way back to the fall. Every tear that I've shed and every tear that I've caused, I don't even know about all those tears. That's part of what evil does, is it blinds me to the presence of evil in my own life. God has a bottle, and it captures all of them. How big must it be? How broken must the heart of God be? What's God going to do with all of it? How does he make things right? How does he bring justice? All the nations are gathering together in the valley of Jehoshaphat on the day of decision. What will happen? Well, two things are going to happen. The first is people are going to resist him. The nations will resist him. Again, the language of Joel is powerful. Verse 9 says, proclaim war among the nations. And Joel actually reverses the language of Isaiah. This is where those who, who, who just grab a verse here or there from the Bible, they get confounded. Because listen to what happens here. The verse that we love from the Bible, the promise of peace. And Isaiah 2 says, when peace comes, we're going to beat our swords into plowshares. No more time for war. But listen to what Joel says. He turns it right around. He says, tell the nations, if they want to defy me, go ahead then. Beat their plowshares into swords. Because, you know, we're determined that we're not going to be accountable to anyone. You know about this. We can find our ways around justice. We can fight our way out. We can buy our way out. We can bully our way out, charm our way out. We can talk our way out. But not on this day. Uh Uh-uh. Not on the day of the Lord. On that day, all the rationalizations, all the justifications in my heart and in yours, they all are laid bare. Justice is coming. Let the nations rouse themselves. It says in Joel 3, verse 12. Let the nations rouse themselves as they come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge We're going to come back to that image in a second. I will sit to judge the neighboring nations. But again, the language here, so powerful. The human race is going on living in defiance. I can go my own way. I'm smart enough. I have enough technology, intelligence, power, whatever. I can do it on my own. It says, let the nations go to war then if they want. But there I will sit. Sometimes the imagery of Scripture makes us imagine that at the end of time there is this great battle. And there is. But we like to imagine it as the good people against the bad people. We're the good people on one side, and all the heavenly powers are lined up on our side. And they're the bad people on their side, and all the evil powers are lined up over there. And it's going to be kind of like Lord of the Rings, something like that. 
Here you have in Joel, all the nations come. They're bringing all of their swords and technology and power and wealth. And there's God. What does he say? I will sit. God doesn't even have to stand up. It's like just swatting an ant off his sleeve. The posture of sitting in the face of defiant human power. The posture of sitting is always the posture of judgment. He sits in the posture of a judge. Who's coming? God is coming. What's coming? Justice is coming. God will bring it. What's he going to judge? Evil. How much evil is in the the world? Oh, so much. How much evil is still in my life? So much. This is all really dark until you get to a single word in a single verse. I want to give you this one. This is one of the great 316s of the Bible. You all know John 316, for God so loved the world. You've memorized that one. Let me give you Joel 316. Chapter 3, verse 16, God says, justice is coming. All of that evil is coming into the light. And here's the word. But. All that darkness. And then it all, it all hinges on this word. But, God says, I will be a refuge for my people. I, the Lord God, will bring into light every unjust act, every unholy word, the God whose judgment will fall upon the world, the verdict hanging in the balance, I will be a refuge. That's what's so staggering about the gospel. And this is the gospel. That a decision was made there. But it wasn't our decision. This is the day of the Lord in the valley of decision. But it's talking not about ours, but about God's decision. This could be translated the valley of the verdict. The verdict has been passed. God's decision. God decides that all the pain, all the injustice, all the tears in that great bottle, all the misdeeds, all the sin, that God will be refuge for his people. All of it will fall onto one perfect man. And you fast forward several hundred years, and the valley of decision becomes a hill called Calvary. And Jesus ascends across, and, and the scriptures describe that day. Isaiah 53 says, he was pierced for what? Our transgressions. He was crushed for what? Our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, somehow, someway, by his wounds, we are healed. This crucified Jesus, upon whom all of the injustice and darkness and cruelty of the world fell, in ways that we can never fully understand on the cross, in the cross that the world cannot escape, can't get away from, the verdict is given. And the verdict is grace. And then the risen Jesus comes, still comes to men and women today after giving his life and says, now, let's talk about what goes on the altar. Come follow me. Give me everything you've got. You can die to that old, sorry, self-centered, egocentric life, and you can be born into something bigger bigger and and more noble. Abandon everything petty, small, and sin-filled. You can just leave it behind. Commit yourself without reserve to me. Obey me. Trust me. Learn from me. Abide in me. Follow 
me. Church, I am asking you today, have you made that decision? And I know in a sense that's way beyond us. But we need to come back to it all the time. Because I also know that God gives us the power to decide. To be clear, I'm not asking how much you know or whether you understand that there's a decision or not, not asking what you've learned. I'm asking whether you've made the decision. I will follow. I will place Jesus right on the central altar of my life. I don't care what other people do. I don't care what it costs. I don't care the difficulty. I don't care how I will do this. This is not going to be a both and deal. This is either or, and I choose Jesus. And he's always asking that question all through the Bible. There at the very beginning of his ministry, will you follow me? And there at the very end, crucified, resurrected, will you follow me? Die to that old life. Your pride, self-centeredness, will you follow me? Well, this is Decision Weekend, folks. I'm going to ask you to, to reach for this little card. I want to give you a few moments, just the time between you and, and God, and I want to ask you if this would be helpful. I mean, you don't have to do this, but I invite you to consider the value of placing a stake in the ground and making this a moment where you get really clear about what's on the altar of your life. These words can be powerful. I have decided. Maybe it's time to decide what you are building your life upon. And maybe you've never clearly said this before. And if so, maybe today is God's day for you. And you can just write on that card quite simply, I have decided to follow Jesus. And if that's the case, we're just going to rejoice with you. We're going to hope that you come see us for prayer after the service. We're going to fill the baptistry a few weeks from now. We're going to celebrate that with you. But maybe for some of you, that's a decision that you made some time ago. And maybe there's been a little bit of drift in your life. You made that decision a while back, but something's changed. Maybe work has become your altar or appearance or some kind of recreation. This can also be the moment of decision for you. I'm going to stop. Maybe what you need to write is, I've decided that God comes first. I don't just want God in my life. I want God first in my life. And maybe there's some particular area you've been trying the the both and deal and it's just not working. Yeah, I want God, but I also want to be in charge of my own dating life. And it's going horribly. I'm disobeying there, so I'm just going to give that back to him. Or, yeah, God, I want to be in charge. I want you in my life, but I want to be in charge of my finances, and it's going really badly. I've not been following Jesus there. Or my marriage, or my time, or an attitude, or a relationship. Whatever it is, maybe you just want to write this. I've decided, and I surrender this thing to you. The worship team on the stage, I'm going to invite them to to sing with you a chorus of a great old song, I Surrender All. It's not a both and deal. I'm not just surrendering a percentage, a bit, a piece. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment and allow God to speak to you. And then if, if it helps with this card open in front of you to write it down, to decide, don't just drift. 
Don't just reflect. Actually decide whatever it is God is calling you to today. You decide. You can be a fully committed follower of Jesus. And it starts today. For today is the day of the Lord in the valley of decision.